Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Pete Christathulu. Pete is an entrepreneur and company leader who has focused on building and scaling technology-driven business productivity platforms for most of his career. He's currently the founder and CEO of Zembly, a fast-growing startup using AI to rid the world of bad meetings. Prior to Zembly, Pete was the CEO of MarchX, a conversational analytics company he co-founded and took public. After residing in Seattle for many years, Pete, his wife, Heather, and their two daughters, Pia and Coco, moved to Canada during the pandemic to support their daughter's acting career. And now they reside in Napa, California. Welcome, Pete. Hi, Shauna. I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire questions, and then we're going to get into it. So here we go. Given Heather's background and her, I mean, she's an incredible chef. I, people don't know her necessarily that are listening, but if you don't, you need to follow her. Um, Heather, it's heatherchristo.com, right? Yeah, her site's heatherchristo.com. So I have to ask you, because I'm always jealous that you're married to her. What's your <laughs> what's your favorite cuisine or your like go-to meal? Oh, from her? Uh, so it's changed because as you know, uh, when you and David had come over, she used to cook with butter and sugar and dairy and eggs and all the stuff that I love. Um, and since then, we have changed our eating habits to I'd call it like more plant-based. So before it used to be the um, these cake chocolate cakes that she would make that were insane. I'll just call it like chocolate cakes like generally. She actually is a pastry chef. That's her kind of background. Now she's transitioned that to a a, a chocolate beet cake, 100% plant-based. And it's the most amazing thing you ever had. Oh my God, I need to come over and try it. Um, okay, so given how crazy busy you are between Coco's acting and Heather's career and your career and Pia's fencing, what's your best way that you have found to unwind? Oh, that's a good question. I'd say I don't, I don't, I, I historically didn't, haven't done a great job at that. Um, like you, kind of just focused on getting the work that needs to be done. So I work out. That's what I'm doing now. I'll go on, you know go out and do a bunch of hiking. So we've um, become pretty big fanatics given where we are about getting into the mountains and trails. And that's been, that's just been awesome. So that's, I'd say that's the biggest thing. I that's do. a great way to unwind. That's awesome. Okay. So if a book was written about your life, what would it be called? That's a harder one, right? The road is not always straight. I love that. I think it's that for everybody. Um, yeah. But particularly us, you know, as you look, as, as you know, you look up in life and you wonder, like, how did I get here? Yeah. I didn't plan to be in Napa. I didn't plan to follow our daughter, you know, doing her acting or have a daughter who's a fencer, which I know nothing about. Um, yeah. Or be in a global pandemic that gives you the opportunity to realize a new opportunity to work remotely, right? 100%. 100%. Yeah. 
Is there an app that you can't live without or that you use every day? Spotify. Me too. I'm going to follow <laughs> you. Um, I think I know the answer to this, but are you an introvert or an extrovert? I, I'm an introvert. And, but, you know, I like to hang out with my friends and with people. And so I'll, I'm, I'm selectively extroverted. Yeah. I always think of you as being an, I was going to say maybe an ambivert, if that's the thing, like the in-between, because I always feel like you're so outgoing and you give other people so much energy that I was thinking maybe you're getting energy that way. <laughs> well, like <laughs> I said, it's selective. So you, you oh, get, I get, I got on the list. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, what have you recently read, listened to, or watched that you would recommend? Um, Essentialism by Greg McEwen. I would I highly recommend it to everybody. And I wish I had read it 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, okay, last question. What was the best concert that you ever attended? Oh, gosh. I, we were so lucky when we grew up, where we grew up, during that whole kind of grunge scene. So I would say like the best ones were getting to go to Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, like Nirvana back in our college days. Yeah. I actually never went to any of those, which is, I was not into grunge. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was listening to like early hip hop, early nineties hip hop. Yeah. Well, we were, you know, getting pulled into those things and, you know, we have mutual friends who are in some of those bands. So yeah. it was, it was, uh, those, those were, those were fun. Yeah. So fun. Okay. So talking about our childhood and growing up in college and all that, um, tell our listeners about it. Like, tell me a little bit, and actually you and I have never really talked about this, about your childhood. We met college days. Yeah. Um, so you, I think, you know, some of this, uh, so parents are both from Greece. So Greek immigrant parents, uh, are you first in, generation? They yeah. were born there. Oh, wow. Both, okay. Yeah. Both born there. So, uh, I, Greek was my first language, actually. I don't think I probably spoke English until I was two or so. Um, so grew up in Seattle, went to Blanchett high school, went to the U where I, I met you obviously, and, and other friends, yeah. um, so I had, you know, my parents were, because they're immigrants, when you're immigrant, you're often an entrepreneur, <laughs> you know, you have the guts you to go figure do something. It out. Yeah. What were they doing? They, so my mom was a hairdresser and my dad was a bricklayer. So, uh, and they both own their own small business. So I grew up carrying bricks, uh, and cleaning out, um, hair from the hair salon and believe it or not like the hair salon was a much bigger mess than carrying bricks oh i'm so, sure yeah so that's what that was my childhood growing up um had a bunch of very weird small businesses as a kid always trying to figure out like what was the thing i should be doing yeah so you're like an early one of those early entrepreneurs where your friends who knew you back then wouldn't be so surprised to see you now well yeah and you know some of those people like right Dino and I probably had five different businesses together. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For those of you who know, Dino's my best friend. And um, I kept going. So I went to the U, uh, ultimately got an internship um, with the company uh, as an investment banking intern in yeah. Seattle, which is really rare because that doesn't exist in Seattle necessarily or didn't then. The group I was with, I interned with, happened to be like excellent nationally focused on consumer software. Yeah. So this is kind of dating myself, but um, anyway, I got great experience with them. After that moved after the U moved to Bay area to go into yeah. banking as an analyst. Yeah. Oh. I am super curious about, you know, when you are first generation, how that shapes you as far as your values and um, 
what aspects of like the Greek culture that you most kind of hold dear? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot. Like I'd say one is the work, you know, the work ethic is pervasive if you are, um, for most immigrant children, basically. Like when you see your parents take risks to leave, and most of the time they've left uh, for circumstances that weren't amazing, right? Like my father was the, the last of six kids. He was the only boy. Uh, lived in a village, you know, kind of didn't have enough kind of food or money. His parents didn't um, found his way to the U.S., uh, you know, was doing odd jobs and found his way into kind of bricklaying. So kind of grew up as a as a scrapper, very, you know, determined to kind of do something. My mom, same thing, like troubled childhood. Um, her mother had passed away. Her father wasn't great to her. Uh, they ended up shipping her out to Seattle to live with her aunt. She, coincidentally, that was on Queen Anne. So she ended up going to the Queen Anne High School where I ended up living <laughs> in, uh, in those condos up there. Um, but when people go through those experiences and they leave their country of origin to come to the U.S., whether it was then or now, like they're typically looking for a better life. And so, um, you know, for, because of that, they're incredibly determined to do well, like for themselves, but more importantly, for their kids. And so yeah. I think we end up, we grew up with a uh, like very, very deter, like, you know, hardcore work ethic. And yeah. dad was up at six, didn't come home till five. Mom was up. You know, I, we were vending for ourselves, like making breakfast and doing things. She'd come home, you know, the typical, like very hardworking parents. So I'd say yeah. that's number one. Number two is... Uh, because the community was very tight, it was a small Greek community, family was very important and we did things together frequently. So um, that we grew up with that element as well. I'd say those, those are the two and, and, and those things actually combine in an interesting way where you end up focusing on like, you know, being determined about the things you want to do and having a work ethic. Yeah. Hopefully in that process are, are sensitive to the people that you're doing it with. So all, everything's a journey. And if you have a kind of familial attitude growing up, you tend to want that in your work experiences and, and think about people you work with in that way. Yeah, and totally. So, so how, how do you, um, I guess, carry that on? Because you've had, which we'll get into, um, you know, so much success and Heather's had so much success. Like, how do you um, instill those values in kids today? Like, I, it's kind of a challenge that I'm always curious about. Yeah, the, well, the hardest thing is, like, I think, one, they're going to get the work ethic thing pretty clearly. They, they see it with Heather and hopefully with what I'm doing. But I think beyond that, like, what we try to do is teach them about judgment and effectively, like, how to be smart and not judge others. Like, I think so much of life, people come with preconceived ideas about how things should be how things should work, who someone is, and that actually creates barriers in lots of ways. And so one of the things that we try to do is make sure that, you know, we and they, in fact, aren't passing judgment in advance on anything, including themselves. Um, that's, been a, that's been a big theme here. I love that. That's awesome. So you, after college, you started to say you got this internship, and then I know you worked in investment banking super successfully, you know, got promoted, we're kind of crushing that. Um, what made you decide to transition to tech? 
Yeah, so like to go be an operator in tech. Yeah, I always wanted to, you know, ultimately, I, I always wanted to be an operator. I don't think I know what that meant um, necessarily at the time. But, you know, kind of growing up as I did, um, it was natural to want to go into business for yourself. Um, but in order to do that, I want to be exposed to as many ideas as possible. And, and importantly, like as many, as many successful people as I could. And so the path was really like, look at consulting or banking back then uh, to give, you know, kind of throw yourself into the deep end and see successful CEOs at what probably is like, you know, one of the most important points in their company's life cycle. And so that's, that's why I went to banking. And during the time, as you'll remember, it was the beginning of the internet boom. So this is dating ourselves about like mid nineties. So we were right in the front of that and came down to San Francisco and worked for a company called Broadview and banking was exposed to all the things I want to be exposed to, but realized I didn't want to be a banker long-term. I wanted yeah. to build. Were you working so, like those hundred hour work weeks like every other banker? Yeah. I think I have the office record at sitting at my desk for like 49 hours, literally. And, you know, getting something done and I'll never forget. It was I drove back to my place in uh, San Francisco. So I was working in San Mateo is where the office was. Go back to San Francisco. And I, I, you know, you couldn't even see. It was like Braille on the road. I pulled over six times. Um, it was it was super stupid, but that's what you did. And that's what those jobs were about. Um, so what happened? So I figured out I didn't want to be a banker. I want to be a builder. I, and we had some family things going on. So I moved back to Seattle. And I started a company called GoToNet um, that I was introduced to through through one of my best friends, Dina, who was there. And I knew the, the founders of that company for a long time. So started off in corporate development. It was a good transition from banking into a company that was very strategic, partnership-oriented, uh, and acquisitive. So I could use my skills in a way that were natural for that company uh, and succeed there, number one. And number two be exposed to the inner networkings of a business. Like how did it really run? Like what mm -hmm. was it like? See how I see how I liked it. So fortunately it was very successful there. We ended up selling the company. Uh, I think in 2000 slash 2001, right as the dot com bubble was effectively starting. And so at that time I went on at the combined company, uh, to run the same group. So I ran corp dev, biz dev partnerships for the combined coaching and info space and a big venture fund they had. Um, did that for a few months and then it was time to go figure out what the next thing was. So Yeah, to so figuring it out is like, you didn't just kind of figure it out. You launched this like crazy company that you founded and took public, like walk me through that whole thing. how did you come up with the idea? How did you meet your co-founders? All that. So my co-founders were the, also the, Kind of leading executives at GoTo. So we had gotten to know each other very well. And as you know, like kind of part part of being at a company, especially when you're younger and going back to kind of one of the principles like I have, we talked about, which is like, how do you create community where you work? Like we had built that at that company. And so naturally we did things together, whether we were working or not working. Um, and when we left, and we all left individually at different times and for different reasons, but when we left, all pretty young, we wanted to keep going and we realized that 
if you didn't pay attention to what was happening in the paper, which were stock prices explode, you know, going, you know, spiraling downwards, um, very bad things happening in the world, you realize that the underlying trends of what was happening on the internet were actually still very favorable and very positive. And there was still massive growth, even though everyone felt the sky was falling. And so as we reflected on like what the big categories of innovation were, um, a natural one for us and one that we had started to kind of experiment with at GoToNet was effectively advertise, like the advertising ecosystem. So specifically coming from a kind of small business kind of background with, our, with my family, we realized that there were millions of small businesses, um, many of which had no idea what the internet was because at that time, advertising catered to very big brands right online mm -hmm. small businesses had no idea how to get online once they were online had no idea how to get customers um, distribution was very fragmented uh, and changing and so our belief was that we could create a system or at least a platform that helped these smaller businesses connect with customers digitally so effectively democratize kind of advertising for these small businesses and help them be successful. So that was like the insight that we had, which wasn't happening at the time. Um, and because of our background and we wanted to scale quickly, we started out by identifying platform companies we could acquire who had scale in some of the products that we thought were important, like foundational pieces. And, you know, I, uh, my founders are kind of Russ Horowitz, John Keister, we started working at Russ's house, started, uh, it was started out in his garage. It's a really nice garage. <laughs> we were, <laughs> I love these <laughs> stories when you hear about the, literally working out of the garage. So how did you come up yeah. with the name, the name Marchex? It's a, it was a combination on, on a bunch of initials that ah. uh, honestly, you know, were, were basically around Russ. So, <laughs> um, you know, there was very little, little vote in, in what, what the actual initial combinations were. So we ended up with a name like that, that yeah. actually had some technology bent to it. So not and as, how, not how as many, cool. how many of those co-founders were still around when the company IPO'd like so many years so later? We were all around. Um, we were all around. So we, 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 you know, found the opportunities that we wanted that could form kind of the MarchX platform, if you will. Um, I had led a lot of the, you know, kind of strategy and development and execution around pulling those pieces together. Um, and all of us were operators. And so by virtue of kind of, I'll just, I'm not going to call it poof, but, you know, you, we, we pulled together three or four pieces that formed this platform. So now we had enough scale, like very quickly with our track yeah. record to go execute a very aggressive strategy. What was the initial business model and how did that change over the course of your time there? Yeah. So the initial business model was all uh, advertising, all pay-per-click performance-based advertising. So brands would, we would make sure brands or marketers or these small businesses really had their advertising campaigns distributed across the internet. And when consumers would find those campaigns and click on the ad, we would get a fee for that. So that was, that was the original business model. And we were very successful for a number of, you know, went public, were very successful, um, and then ran into 2008 and 2009 when the economy like, didn't do so well, as, as most remember. And the, and the issue for us then was because our business was 
predicated on small businesses uh, and our partners were small business channel partners with thousands and thousands of small businesses we didn't we didn't do so well like business went down like very very quickly and we were forced to like reinvent ourselves and so at that time i had you know effectively come up with a strategy to push mark checks forward and if you remember mobile was starting to be a thing because this is the beginning of the iphone people were starting to use their device and consumer behavior was changing. And with that consumer behavior changing, that meant different things for businesses. Like they had to hand, think about how they handle their customers in a, in a new way. So for specifically, um, you now had millions of consumers seeing these ads, whether they were on websites, search pages, or even at the time social, and clicking to call these businesses. And so, the challenge for businesses was they didn't understand for marketers was they didn't have context to understand which, which ad at which origination point mm. translated into a customer conversation. Right. What, what happened on that customer conversation? Like truly, like, you know, what are they saying? <laughs> and, and how do I take those nuggets of what the communicate of what the dialogue is and use it to improve how I handle my customers. And so, mm. um, so I came up with the idea to effectively automate workflows for marketers to understand how to effectively create, you know, communicate with their customers in this new mobile world. And I took over as chief operating officer and pushed the business forward in that direction, ultimately was president and then CEO. Yeah. And so what was, the, what was it like taking a company public? I mean, not, not many people get the opportunity to do that. Was it, what were your kind of takeaways as far as surprises or things that, I, I'm assuming that your background in investment banking helped. Yeah, I, there were no, honestly, there were no surprises for us. And the reason is to like twofold. One, I had been fortunate enough to raise billions of dollars for companies and equity financing. So I was connected to that journey and understand and understood it well um number one number two my partners also had taken companies public before and so we understood like what was required of us not just to make sure that you know we were doing the right things but that we were creating a business that was appropriate for shareholders that could be sustainable um and that could execute and that uh, that could execute on the vision that we laid out. So, uh, yeah. you know, it's like we didn't really have any surprises. Um, the only the thing that we did that was different is we were a little untraditional at the time, given we went public kind of so early in our life cycle. Right. And so when you decided to leave, was that because like, hey, I've done what I set out to do here and I've got that bug to kind of start a company again? It's like not always the same person who wants to start a company and then be the CEO of a publicly traded company, such a different role. Yeah, yeah. So there was a, there are a couple of things. You know, one, I had been there for thir you know thirteen years. You know, very few people work in a certain place for that for that long, and um, so I, that's number one. I'd been there for a long time. Number two, you know, we had to continue. You know, you always have to continue reinventing yourself and pushing the business forward in the ways that you think makes the most sense. And towards the end of my career there, and I had brought on a, you know, entirely new executive team uh, who's gone to be very successful, uh, you know, 
a new chairman and Clark Kokic, who's been a mentor of mine uh, forever. Um, and the strategy that I and the team and, you know, wanted to execute um, wasn't necessarily connect, um, wasn't, we didn't have full alignment. At the yeah. end of the day, like we didn't have full alignment between what, like what we wanted to do and what our shareholders and our major shareholders thought thought we should do. And so, you know, at, at those times, you can do one of two things. You can you can kind of double down and keep grinding on the things that, you know, you are doing and try to make them, you know, better in the ways that you think you should. Or you can go find the opportunities that you think, you know, are better suited to your skills. And so that's what I did. Yeah, so that's what you did. So I know because I've been following Heather as a friend and as a fan, yeah. um, all of her cooking and her videos and and you guys kind of co-founded, right? Inspo Network? Yeah, yeah. And um, what was that like working together? Oh and God. then what was that, what was that idea? We have Heather, who is a very well-known um, public figure in the kind of food and entertaining ecosystem, like on TV shows, James Beard Award nominee, all those, uh, all those things. And you had me who was exposed to technology and how kind of things had worked and, and understand and understanding like I'll call it like the digital ecosystem really well. And so there were these fascinating things that I would, you know, I'd come home after work and Heather's audience would be exploding and she'd have these like warm, loving comments about how she's changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people uh, and has improved their diet or has like made their like night that much better with their family because they threw a party and I would go to work selling software to enter to big, to big brands. And I never, <laughs> I never got love. And so it was amazing to me, like the, the differences in our, our kind of our general customer base. And what was more interesting was that not only were they giving her comments about how thankful they were to be with her, but they started to turn those comments into questions about things that she cared about. And they wanted her opinion on what they should do. So she went from being an educator, here's how to make a, the best gluten vegan free cake to being um, an informer. Here are the things that I use to make the best gluten free cake. And people started buying those products and they right. didn't do it in a small way. They started doing it in mass. So like that was, Insight number one was these creators that are well-known figures started having like very big influence on their audience. And I just thought that was fascinating. The second trend that had happened was you realize that in the social networks where these creators had gotten you know, much of their audience, the social, the social networks were actually benefiting more off the creator content than the creators were themselves. So there was this imbalance of who's driving the most value right? Is it, is it Facebook and Instagram who are putting posts of these creators out into the world? Or is it the creator who is an expert in their field who has this amazing, beautiful content? And the best creators in the world who are experts in their field, whether it's Martha Stewart at the high end or, or people like Heather who are specialists and, and well-known, weren't getting the credit they deserve. And importantly, like weren't participating in the value exchange between their content and their consumers. And so the concept mm -hmm. was basically, wouldn't it be amazing to bring the world's best creators together in all the categories 
that are appropriate um, that they that they operate in, uh, and expose them to an audience where they participate in the value of the products that they're talking about and promoting more than they are on the kind of socially consistent way it existed. Number one. Number, the second thing was social sucked. It's noisy, lots of ads. Um, doesn't feel really good. The creators started being used and they still are today by social networks. Um, and so we saw an opportunity to pull together a network that was very curated, very you know, quality driven and customized. So that was exciting to me to go, go big and consumer, uh, help these women who for the most part were the breadwinners in their family really like grow their businesses and help them succeed. Yeah, I loved it. I was so rooting for it. So what happened? How did it, how are you not doing it anymore? I don't actually know the story. Yeah, so good, you know, big idea. Uh, we didn't have a good enough solution. At the end of the day, well, it's hard. So the customer acquisition part would be hard because people don't want to go on all these different networks. Works. That's right. That's right. So, like startups, you know, at the end of the day, there's lots of reasons why they work and don't work, and there's more reasons why they don't work. And ultimately, like those reasons are excuses. Like, am I like you? Either didn't have you weren't either you either weren't even going after a big enough market, like the problem wasn't real enough, or like you didn't have a good enough solution to like change behavior. And ultimately, like our issue was we had a very good like world-class solution for the creators. We had, you know, hundreds of the world's leading creators on our platform who had hundreds of millions of audience, but yeah. we didn't have a consumer solution that was good enough to change the behavior from going on to Instagram versus coming to us first. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's where, that's where we ultimately fail. Well, it's interesting so, because like I've had the CEO of likewise on here, which is, the solution yeah. for like all the reviews of podcasts and books and everything which people yeah, go Ian. to their face. Yeah, Ian, Ian yeah. Morris. And then I've also had Liz Pierce, who's the CEO of Fresh Chalk, which is a different idea around reviews of service providers, but there's like Angie's List and Craigslist. There's so much out there yeah. that it, it is hard to know like, well, and your yours was cool because I, I didn't see anyone else doing it. Yeah. You know, it was well, like- consumer, Consumer's really hard. And yeah, consumer's hard. Consumer is really hard because you you end up dealing with um, kind of multi-channel issues, right? You have uh, the consumer themselves, like how do I make sure I'm like handling this experience or attacking this problem in a way that recruits you or makes you want to come use my thing? And then you have like the economics around making that work, right? Like mm -hmm. you have like, how do I make money? And so you, you end up having this frequently this conflict of how do you build a great business that everyone loves where you can make money. And mm -hmm. so in our and case, what was the know, business model? Like how were you planning to make money? Yeah. So in our, we were going to make money off of a percentage of the commerce that was driven through the platform. Yeah. That seems really obvious and really great. Yeah. Look, we had, we had, a, it was a good idea. I think that had, you know, had we more time or perhaps had thought, you know, thought through the solution like a little bit more completely and delivered on it, like we would have done well. We had great investors, um, people who are passionate about it, who understand yeah. consumer would build big businesses. And um, it's, I was, it's just so hard to do these things. And I'm curious what your takeaways are as far as if you're giving advice to someone who's considering going into consumer facing businesses, what did you learn? 
Yeah, I think I think I'd say this is probably true for any business, at least in my experience. I think I think you have to think about the obvious. The obvious things are everyone knows big market, big problem, and and those are I just would call them prerequisites for being you know, having success. Um, the things that you really need to think through are like one unfair advantages. Like, what are the unfair advantages that you bring to the problem that you're thinking about, and typically. In my experience, those those can be like one of three things. Like one, there's information asymmetry. So I know something that you don't, or I have this insight that others don't have, uh, and therefore I'm able to expose it and, and do something like really interesting. Number number two is I have the people that have done this thing before, uh, and therefore able to execute it again and likely better. And the third is you likely have built a product that has either a data or network effect of, of, of some of some you know of some semblance. Hopefully you have all those three. And if you have all those three, you have like a high likelihood of, of doing really well. If if you don't or if you don't have a path to one of those things, then you should not do it. And and so in our case, you know, I'd started off with it, have an enterprise background helping business helping businesses automate productivity. I went to a consumer business that was socially driven in a creative ecosystem. Yeah, totally different. And so, and probably coming off of some success thinking, you know, you, you can do anything, not everything. Yeah. Like probably not a great use, probably not the perfect use for me given my skill set. Well, not necessarily because I would have definitely doubled down on you and Heather. I mean, it's just sometimes it's timing and sometimes it's that consumer behaviors you can't even understand. Like you said, 99% of startups don't make it. And then I'm sure it's even a disproportionate amount uh, that would be consumer facing. So that makes sense. And so, yeah, you're the, you're the crazy one who's been, um, you know, traveling and following Coco and doing these cool adventures that uh, we've gotten the opportunity to do this past year. And then, you, of course, you go and start a company again, <laughs> November 2020, <laughs> during COVID. Um, I know you guys are still in beta with a wait list of all sorts of uh, companies waiting to get in. I can't wait. Um, so tell me about Zembly and the idea and all of it. Yeah, so for the first thing that I had to do was make sure that family was okay doing it. <laughs> like, as, as you know, like when you go into these things, they're all consuming and we just come out of an, ex, you know, an experience that didn't work. Yeah. And uh, it's like doing the time, appetite for this, but it's not like you're going to go get a job, Pete. I mean, let's get real. You're not going to go work for someone else at this point. It'd be very difficult uh, yes. uh, to do that. Um, so um, although I did think about it for 20 seconds. So what does the company, what does the company do? What does Embly do? Yeah. So, so our goal is to you know, rid the world of terrible meetings at the like at the highest level. And we do mm-hmm. that by automating meeting excellence. And so here's the problem. There are one and a half billion information workers who spend nearly two trillion minutes in 50 billion meetings a year worldwide. Half of that time they tell us is unproductive. So here we are, we live in this one-click world where you can literally buy a house. I can buy a house right now on the internet. But we're, you know, companies are okay with their most important asset, wasting half of their time yeah. in, in meetings. And so when you think about like the output and what that means for a worker, they are in this kind of 
meeting hell during their day all day long. It's never ending. Once they're done with work, they actually have to work late in the night to get work done, which means they can't spend time with their family. Totally. They then go through this whole emotional toll of how much their life sucks because they're working so much. And they start looking for new jobs or thinking about new jobs and then the companies suffer. Yeah. So if you think about, as I thought about like, where do I focus my energy and, and what are like the biggest problems that I think I can impact? Like solving like the meeting challenge is probably, in my opinion, the single biggest challenge in like the global workplace today. I if think can, I would oh, totally agree with that. But does it have to do with the content of the meeting, the who's involved in the meeting, the time frame of the meeting? Like what parts are you tackling are all of it? Yeah, so we're tackling all that. I'll tell you the reason why. So people have thought about, like a lot of smart people have thought about going after the meeting space before. And um, it was important for me to remove my own bias of what I, how I felt about meetings. And so we spent months talking to thousands of people about their specific problems related to meetings, not just in North America, but global. And what we found was there are 16 different problems related to meetings that start before a meeting even occurs, all the way into preparation, during the meeting itself, and then after the meeting. And all these problems are interrelated. And so if you try to attack one slice of it, you don't have context across the entire meeting. And so you may end up creating more issues or actually not solving the meeting problem and creating more work for that user. Examples of that would be there are really cool calendaring and scheduling apps now that let you auto schedule people or find time or create time blocks. Like those solutions just make the meeting problem worse. You've now opened your calendar to anyone who wants to put time on it and it puts your own priorities like further down the chain. And so going back to kind of my experience at MarkCheck and thinking about how we automated workflows and we streamlined workflows for marketers to understand how to improve those customer interactions. The problem is actually very similar here. So we looked at um, meetings and we asked like, what would it look like if we could automate meeting excellence? What if every worker in the world had a world-class chief of staff dedicated to just them? So that they had perfect meeting hygiene. When they were in meetings, there were perfect notes. And after the meeting, they understood exactly how to improve like that event itself. If you could do that, you would end up decreasing meeting time by probably 50%, number one. And for the meetings that were left, those would probably be two or three times better. The other thing, like the nice benefit that would happen with all of that is you would also have the opportunity to help train people, right? So meeting, meeting skills are leadership skills, preparation, time management, um, effective team collaboration, creativity, decision-making. Like mentorship today is gone in the workplace. Like you and I and, and many others have been so lucky to grow up when we did, or we had incredible mentors and we still likely have them today. Like I just think like that doesn't exist. And so if you can help people be excellent at their meeting life, it likely improves their career and how they perform. And if you can do that, you likely help that person like hopefully grow over time and, and be better at work and hopefully yeah. also be better at home. So that's well, where so, we're going Yeah, I love it. But it's like the big question is it all sounds incredible and aspirational, but with it, but the big dilemma is like, how? How do you do that yeah. without giving it away to your 
competitors because I'm sure yeah. you've got some. No, no. So we use um, AI to automate all your meeting tasks, uh, decisions, and actions. And so, uh, so you don't have to. So because, because we are connected to your meeting life, in the background, we are making decisions about the kind of, of meetings you should be going to and not going to, how long those should be or shouldn't be, how many attendees should be there or not be there, if there should be a meeting at all or shouldn't, and we're giving mm. you automated recommendations. And it's up to you whether you want to accept the, whether or not you want to accept those recommendations. And are you are you targeting um, just managers and leaders or all employees? And if so, is it a per head subscription based model for companies to yeah, use, this, use the platform? So we're targeting, I'll just call them line managers now who are cross functional. Yeah. So mm -hmm. cross functional uh, leaders who are in product, marketing, sales, operations, right? People who have complex organizational complexity and meet with lots mm -hmm. of people in different meeting types. Yeah. So, and what about, how about tech? Anyone in tech? Yeah. So in engineering, of course we want them, but I'd say like the core problem that we want to solve right now is the person that has the most meeting pain. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be that leader who meets with every person across the company or every role. Mm. Yeah. And engineering tends to be siloed amongst themselves most of the times, maybe and with some of product. So we're focused on those roles that have a little more cross-functional discipline. And so when you're, when you're looking at it, like obviously you're in beta now, but if we meet again in a year and you look back and say, we're crushing it, we're successful because the, the customers are re-signing up, right? They're not just trying you and then saying, well, that was cool, but we didn't get anything out of it. What are you using to measure the success? Yeah, so the products, like we, because we're connected to that user, we are, we understand like really clearly if we're helping them or not. And so at the end of the day, there, there are two metrics that we're looking at. Like one, are we actually saving that person time? Like, have we improved like how they think about their time uh, and the priorities that they're connected to? Hopefully like goal execution. Number two, for the meetings they're in, are they better or not? Is life better for them or not? And we and have so like- the, This is all self-described by the person that you're targeting. It's not, no, you're it's not- all, No, we're tracking, it's all metric driven. So we're able to- You're tracking it, okay. We're able to measure, we're able to measure those uh, mm -hmm. elements. Interesting, interesting. So how have you thought, how, who makes up the team right now? It's you and you've got how many people? Yeah, yeah so we have, it's uh, uh, myself, my co-founder, Jason Flax, who was, uh, our head of product engineering at MarchX, who built a lot of the systems that are similar to the way things we're thinking about today. Uh, Peter Francis, who leads our growth efforts. Peter was my customer at T-Mobile. He ran digital and customer experience for T-Mobile. He then ran global growth for Qualtrics for five years. So he's now over here with us. Um, Ziad Ismail, who was my chief product officer at MarchX, is now the CPO at Convoy. He's on my board. Wow. Uh, Clark Lokic, who is my prior chairman, is also on my board. And That's then our, advisor, our advisors, our investors are, you know, a bunch of people you know who are well-known operators and executives who are passionate about this problem. Yeah. Uh, it's easy, have, you know, it's it, easy to get passionate about it because nobody wants to be. I told you this early. You know, we do one meeting a week. It's like half hour. Um, part of that is because I personally hate meetings, but also... 
if I was in corporate America, which I've actually never really been in, um, I would have had to by now learn how to run a meeting. I don't know that I'm great at that. Um, this would be an amazing skill for people to be able to get at these 16 things, right? Yeah. One of them is obviously the prep and the efficiency around running a meeting. Yeah, that's right. So look, we're, we're excited about the product. We have um, people are private beta using it. We have great feedback. We have a that's great. You know, very, very long wait list. And so we're- You're off we're to the races. So how are you going about funding the business? Yeah, so we did already did a funding uh, last year, late last year, um, which you know a handful of executives and I participated in, and now I'm close to our second, you know, finishing our second funding, which we'll announce in a little bit. That's so exciting! And so, given that this isn't your first run, um, how do you personally look at building culture? Um, you know, drawing in top talent sounds like you're really good at it so far at Zembly, bringing over people from your past. But what's your overall strategy around talent acquisition and, and building culture? Yeah, I think I, the first thing is to be honest about like where you're really good and where you're not and, and you know, find the people to plug those holes. That's not a new thing. People talk about that uh, a lot. Um, but I think you have to be self-critical in order to have that be true. And uh, I think over time, I've become more self-critical of myself. I know what I'm better at and I know what I'm not good at at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I brought on, I talked to my co-founder, Jason Flax, because he's the best in the world at doing the things that we need to do to solve this problem, like yeah. technically the best. And Peter Francis, there is no better growth and customer mind like than him. Um, and so I, you know, I just try to be deliberate about who those people are. And it doesn't, it doesn't extend to, it extends to not only like the internal team, but the external team. If you think about your investors and the people that are connected to your thing, whatever it is, why are those people there? Like, are they there just because they want to be a name? Are they there to do something? And, you know, I've learned over time, you need to give people tasks and and ask for their help. And so, you know, I'd say you need to be really deliberate and, and, um, about about that and if you are and if you can go back to figuring out what your unfair advantages are so you have something that's secret i think you can i think you can do well yeah and you're in great shape and so how would you personally it it sounds like you've gotten this wisdom which is the benefit of having a few companies under your belt i know a lot of people talk about these early ceos crushing it you've had tons of success but there is something about the wisdom that you get after years and you can learn about you know which lane to play in and and where you're weak how would you describe your leadership style? Like, where are you strong and where are you weak? Yeah, I think, well, I think the first thing is, you know, where we started talking about like the environment you want to create and but, like the values that you hold. And so like, what's important for me is like, we have a team that, you know, especially in these early stages, there are people that I spend like, you know, mo- not the majority, but, you know, a huge amount of my time. And so you, we need to make sure that that's a good experience for them and a good experience like for me and a good experience like to set the tone for what we want to build. Um, so like more, I don't want to call it family because it's not family, but it's being, making sure like you have an environment that yeah. is like caring, like open and honest. And you can have hard conversations that aren't taken the wrong way and they're hopefully, you know, productive and constructive. 
um, like that that's I think that's like the one of the most important things for me um, where I'm where my so my strengths are likely so what would people say how about this what would I say being self-critical like my strengths would be um, I think I have excellent vision and strategy about like the things that should be built why they should be built and how to go about building those things um, I know what it should look like how it should feel uh, I have a I think I'm you know, a very good slash excellent team builder, recruiter. Um, and I can help drive the company to excellent execution. Like I'm, I'm really good. At that. Um, the places where I'm less good is I'm not as technical as I wish I was. Um, I understand how to build a product, but Jason won't let me get into the nuances uh, of product building itself. Um, once in a while, he'll take my, he'll take my advice, uh, customer growth. I'm excellent with customers and in front of customers, but there are a lot of nuances to being like acquiring customers and making sure that you love them well, day in and day out. Peter Francis isn't the best, is the best in the world with that. Yeah. It sounds like you're just surrounding yourself with people where, you know, it's like the law of comparative advantage, like who's best at this and where do we go and who's in what lane. I would think of you as being the person that should be in front of people. Um, <laughs> I just think you've got great vibes. You've always had such good energy and, um, and you're trustworthy, like all of those qualities. Um, I kind of tell my kids this, like get good grades, do well in school. Hopefully you get into a good college because it opens up potential doors. But at the end of the day, if your EQ is high and you know how to handle human beings and you've got a good work ethic, you're kind of in good shape. <laughs> Well, well, you know, being kind doesn't cost you anything, as you know. So I think if we all, if we all do a little bit more of that, uh, life will be oh, a little better. Oh my gosh, today more than ever, right? Okay, so my ultimate question for you is what fuels you? I, I, you know, what fuels me is right now. So we have kids that are kind of growing and thriving in the way that you'd want them to um, and are hopefully growing up to be the human beings that, you know, better, you know, much better than you were. And like, that's the most exciting thing that we have. And a family that's incredibly supportive of dream chasing. Like, that, I think that's the biggest thing. And, and, and ultimately, that allows you to go after the things you want. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.